I think that's a very important distinction for us to make as we face the crisis of the church and indeed all religion today in the modern world, in the world of technology and in a secularized world. We have to rethink the meaning of religion itself. This is Expanding Horizons. Candid conversations, passionate people, important issues. Produced by the Jesuit Institute, South Africa. Father Lawrence Freeman recently visited South Africa. And as something different, this week we thought we'd share with you one of his lectures. Father Lawrence is a Benedictine monk, an expert on Christian meditation. He's the author of several books on the topic and has been involved in the World Community for Christian Meditation since 1980. This is Expanding Horizons. It's been a wonderful visit so far, and I look forward to it continuing in that way. The theme of the visit was contemplative living, and my time here has reinforced my conviction that contemplative living can be lived anywhere. You don't have to be in a monastery or in the forest or in the mountains. Whatever kind of life you happen to be living, wherever you are, whatever responsibilities you're fulfilling, that is a life that can be lived contemplatively. And we might just look at the word contemplative for a moment. It contains the word templum, the Latin word for temple, so contemplative to be in or within the temple. And when we think of the word temple, we think of a building, a structure, whether it's a huge church, cathedral, or little Hindu temple, or a synagogue, or a mosque, or whatever. It's a sacred building. But actually, the word temple, uh, templum, referred not to the building or the structure, but to the space in which the structure was built. And so you created the space, you could draw a square on the, on the ground in the dust, and then in that square, which was now the templum, you did whatever sacred mysteries you wanted to do. And then you could also build something there that you, which you could use for these rituals or mysteries uh, at other times. But of course, over time, we identified the structure, the building, with the space. And I think that's an, a very important distinction for us to make as we face the crisis of the church. And indeed, all religion today is passing through in the modern world, in a world of technology and in a secularized world. We have to rethink uh, the meaning of religion itself. And we have to realize that secular doesn't necessarily mean anti-religious. It's simply, I mean, who would want to go back to the medieval papacy? Or who would like to live under the Taliban? So we all respect and would want to defend the idea of secular in which we are free to be religious. Not, we're not free to impose our religious belief on others or to demand special treatment from people who have other beliefs or no beliefs, maybe. I don't think anybody has no beliefs, but if you don't believe in anything, you, you believe in nothing. So, so I think this, this understanding of contemplation is very helpful 
for us as we try to understand what the shape and purpose and nature, form of the church will be in, in the future. And this evening, we've taken the theme of word into silence because this uh, takes us into a number of different ideas and I think important reflections on the meaning of contemplation uh, for today. Word into Silence is the title of the first book that John Main published. So maybe I'll, let me give you a little bit of biography of John Main because it will also help to explain why we are here and why the world community of Christian meditation came into existence the way that it did. So John Main was born in London from an Irish family, an Irish Catholic family, in 1926. Educated at Stamford Hill by the Jesuits and uh, served at the end of the, of the Second World War and then entered religious life quite young for a couple of years, realized it wasn't for him, came out, studied law, and then studied Chinese at SOAS in London, and then joined the British Foreign Service and went out to what was then Malaya, or today is Malaysia. And there he was uh, working in the Governor General's office, and one day was sent to visit an Indian monk who had just been made justice of the peace by the British. And Swami Satyananda was very well known in Kuala Lumpur for his work in reconciling the different ethnic and religious groups that were in violent conflict at that time, and also setting up an orphanage for the children who were the victims of the war. So John Main was asked to go out to see him and thank him for his work for peace and on behalf of the British government and invite him to go and have tea with the Queen one day. So the conversation uh, after this or more formal encounter, the conversation turned to more spiritual matters. And before long, he realized he was in the presence of a deeply spiritual person person who was very active, very philanthropic, and very shrewd in his uh, work in, for healing the wounds of society, but also a man of deep spiritual insight and wisdom. And John Main himself was a very spiritual person, practicing Catholic, took his faith very seriously, and so they, they met at this level of faith. And then they began to speak about prayer. And the monk asked John Main, are you a prayerful man? And he said, yes, I am. He said, how do you pray? And he described basically the various ways of prayer uh, that we'd be familiar with, that he was trained in, uh, forms of mental prayer and, of course, the Mass and uh, scripture and devotion. These, I think, are the most characteristic forms of prayer that we identify. The monk listened to this and said, well, I'm really pleased to meet you, to meet a prayerful man of the world, 
with your faith. But he went on to speak about a dimension of prayer that he himself practiced, which he called meditation. And he said in meditation, we move from the head to the heart. And we do this because we believe that in the human heart, the spirit of the universe dwells, the spirit that creates the universe dwells within the human heart and in silence is loving to all. This is a verse from the Upanishads. And John Main was moved by this in, in a number of levels. Partly it reminded him of his own faith, of the heart as the place of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But also he was struck by the authenticity of this monk's repetition of this verse. And so they spoke more. And uh, the monk told him how they meditated, which was to take a word, a sacred word, to repeat it in the mind, in the heart, continuously, laying aside thoughts, and doing this with a, uh, in, a, in terms of a regular practice. So again, John Main was moved. Partly it reminded him of our own traditions of repetitive prayer, but also of the, the scriptures which speak about the prayer of the heart. So he said to the monk, he said, well, I'm very grateful for meeting you. And I can't say that, perhaps he said, I'm putting words into his mouth, that uh, perhaps he hadn't met many other religious people in the past who had spoken about this dimension of prayer. And he said, this he did say, could you teach me as a Christian to meditate? So the monk said, well, of course. He said, it will make you a better Christian. So he said, I could teach you, provided you're serious about it. So he said, what do you mean by serious? So he said, well, by serious, I mean that you practice it. And if you do it, if you practice it in a serious way, that means doing it every day, morning and evening, for about half an hour. And you can and then integrate it into your life and into your other ways of prayer. And then, if you like, you can come and meditate with me every week for a little time. We'll meditate together. If you have any questions, we can discuss it. So John Maynard accepted this invitation. He was a disciplined man. Always got up very early in the morning. So he meditated, started to meditate morning and evening, integrating it into his daily mass and into his other ways of prayer. And once a week, he would go to visit his teacher. And he said in his little book called Gethsemane Talks, he describes how he would ask his, at first he would say to the monk, how long is this going to take? And I'm really finding it quite difficult. My mind's very distracted. So when am I going to get over this? And the monk, he said, would usually smile. Or he would say, say your mantra. Mantra refers to the, the word that you repeat. So say your mantra. And uh, many years later, in one of the last uh, talks that John Main gave before he died, he remembered this, this encounter with his this monk, and he said, 
looking back, he could say that these were the wisest words he ever heard about prayer. Say your mantra. So, after a couple of years, he came back to uh, Europe. He became a young professor of international law at Trinity College, Dublin, still meditating. And he said he was eager to speak to priests or religious who would understand this way of prayer that he'd learned, but he couldn't find anyone. When he started to talk about it, he could see them looking a bit blank or frightened. So he, uh, he just continued on his own. After a few more years, his original vocation, you know, to religious life resurfaced, and uh, he became a monk at a monastery in London, Benedictine Monastery in London. And again, he was looking forward to the opportunity to talking with a, a real live monk who would understand this way of prayer. And so when he met with his novice master and described this way of meditation that he'd incorporated into his life, he was a bit disappointed when the monk said to him, well, I can't say I've ever heard of anything like that. And uh, well, anyway, you can forget about that now and uh, start praying properly. So in those days, monks were still obedient. So, so he gave up meditation. And later he said that this was like going into a desert, a spiritual desert, but he, he flourished in the desert. He, uh, of course, studied, he, he prayed in other ways, deepened his prayer in other ways, and studied theology, was professed as a monk, he was in Rome during the Vatican Council period, and he uh, was ordained, came back to his monastery. And then a few years later, he was made headmaster of a Benedictine school in Washington, D.C. in the late 60s. And the school was in disarray. The students were all in rebellion. The monks were all leaving to get married. So everything was up in the air. So they asked him, he was a solid and good organizer and a leader. So he was asked to, to take over, which he did. And one day, the abbot came to him and said, there's a young student here who's just come to see us, come to the monastery. He's just come back from Asia. He's been around all the ashrams, all the zendos, uh, all, been to all the meditation teachers in, in Asia. And he came to this Benedictine Christian monastery, He'd been brought up as a Catholic. And uh, he said, I, I'm just wondering whether there's anything in Christianity that relates to what I have learned and the rich, wonderful stuff I've learned in Asia. So the abbot asked uh, Father John to deal with him, get him off his back. So they talked. He realized he was a serious uh, seeker, and he put him in touch with the teachings of the early Christian desert. This was the origin of the Christian monastic movement, beginning in the third, fourth centuries. And one of the great works that came out of that, one of the great pillars of, of Western spirituality, uh, were the Conferences of Cassian which they say Ignatius 
had on his desk as he, as he wrote. Cassian on one hand, the Bible on the other. And so this led him back to his own uh, roots of his own tradition, realizing the crisis of Christian education. What did it mean to be a Christian school when the students departed never to return to the faith after when they left the school? Realizing the crisis in, of the church in so many ways, the hunger for spirituality, this young student exemplifying the hunger for depth and the apparent failure of the church to respond to it. So this led him back to a serious uh, period of, of, of research into his own roots. And in Cassian, in particular, he found what he, what he was seeking. In the ninth and 10th conferences of Cassian, Abba Isaac, one of the great teachers of the desert, was visited by John Cassian and his friend Germanus. And they went to Isaac and they said, teach us about prayer. And the desert tradition was very focused on prayer rather than on arguments about theology or church discipline. It was about prayer as a means of living the gospel to the full and of personal transformation. In the ninth conference, Abba Isaac gives this beautiful disquisition on prayer. He describes the different forms of prayer using the scriptures to describe them, and then describes how these different forms of prayer converge in what he calls the prayer of fire, which is our union with the prayer of Christ. It's a beautiful, classic, and really the essential theology of all Christian prayer. And he describes how this gradual convergence of all prayer into the prayer of Christ brings about a transformation of one's life so that everything you're doing is saturated or suffused with this experience of prayer, of continuous prayer. And these desert teachers were very focused upon realizing, discovering what continuous prayer really meant. Enlightenment, I suppose, would be the, another term for it. So Germanus, uh, Cassian and Germanus were very excited by this talk. They went back to their little cells in the desert. And then when they sat down to discuss it, they said, well, he really gave us a great talk, but he didn't tell us how to do it. So they walked back across the desert for a few days, and they found their way back to Abba Isaac. And they said, thank you for this great talk. Really was uplifting. Can't remember everything you said now, but it was a great talk. But you didn't tell us how to do it. Now, Abba Isaac says, welcome back. Now that you know what to ask for, I can speak to you. You're next door to understanding when you know what to ask. So he sat them down, and then he, in the 10th conference, he describes the practice of this vision of prayer. And he describes that the big obstacle to realizing this 
vision of prayer, this union with the prayer of Christ, is our own mind. It's not the noise and the traffic outside or the how busy your life is. It's, it's the state of your own mind, our own noisy, distracted minds. Now, it might seem strange to us to think that these desert monks in the four, in the fourth century were so distracted compared with us. <laughs> we know how distracted we are. We have the attention span of a goldfish at the moment. Actually, it's less than a goldfish. A goldfish is nine seconds. So its life, its life is renewed every nine seconds. So it doesn't get bored in the goldfish bowl. The attention of an average North American student is eight seconds, though, so they say. In any case, they recognized that it was the distracted mind, the teeming mind, that actually the mind of what Lao Tzu, the Chinese uh, tradition calls the, the 10,000 things rising and falling continuously, like a waterfall, like this, this fountain here, this waterfall of, of thoughts, words, and images. So Isaac says, the way to deal with this is to take a single verse. He calls it in Latin, formula. And to repeat this verse continuously in the mind and heart during the time or during meditation. In fact, he says, you should repeat this all day long. Rather like the Jesus prayer in the way of the pilgrim in the Russian Orthodox tradition. Well, exactly the same as that. And the, the verse, the formula, or the mantra that he gave Cassian, Cassian and Germanus was Deus in Adjutorium Meum Intende, Domine Adjuandum Mei Venit. In other words, O God, come to my assistance. O Lord, make haste to help us. This is how we begin the divine office still. This is how Benedict, this is what Benedict uh, took over as the beginning of the divine office. So every time we say the office, we're repeating, uh, although only once, but we're repeating Cassian's mantra. Now, Isaac gives a beautiful uh, description of this method. He says, you repeat this phrase, this formula, and by the constant repetition of this single verse, you come with ready ease to the first of the Beatitudes, to poverty of spirit. Now, clearly, John Main recognized this method, which he had learned many years before in Far East. He now had found, described very explicitly in his own Christian tradition. And he began to practice it himself, and soon, a few years later, began to teach it widely. So Cassian's description of meditation in this way was rooted, grounded in the scriptures, but also at this level of experience, just as John Main's teacher had said, I can only teach you to meditate if you're serious about it, if you do it. So Cassian also says, this is, this is something you have to do. And experience is your teacher, magistra experientia. Experience is your teacher. And that's true for us today. He describes how we say this phrase, the mantra, continuously, 
during the period of meditation, and we renounce all the richness of thought and imagination at this time. And then he says, of course, we will pass through many uh, states of mind as we do this. And, and he says, we continue with this work of attention, single-mindedness, in prosperity and in adversity. So whether your meditation is going very well and you feel this is very peaceful, or whether the meditation seems very dry and you don't seem to be getting anywhere that day and uh, you're climbing up a steep hill. In prosperity and adversity. And then he gives a description of a states of mind which you pass through in order to, uh, as you make this journey. And very, some very subtle uh, descriptions of these states of mind. Then he, he says, uh, Cassian says, we were delighted with what we heard and we thought, well, this is really simple method. This is going to be very easy. Well, it was simple, but not easy. So he said, we've actually found it was more difficult than the way, the more meandering ways of prayer that we had been practicing before. Nevertheless, we persevered with it. And one of the first fruits of this became evident in their reading of scripture in the word of God. And he said, we now began to read the scriptures as if we had written them ourselves. So it beautifully describes that feeling of really being touched personally by, uh, by a passage of scripture. As if you'd written it, it describes exactly what you are feeling. And he said, we could see now much more into, he said, the bones and marrow of, uh, of, the, of the text. And he concludes the conference by saying, this very simple approach to prayer, they called it pure prayer, or ratio pura, he said, has this wonderful virtue in that it is universal. It can be practiced by anyone. You don't have to be learned, you don't have to be holy, you don't have to be uh, a monk, you don't have to be, you know, it's available for anyone because of its total simplicity. Some years ago, when John Main's book, Word into Silence, was published in Brazil, a Brazilian Jesuit wrote a foreword to the book, a well-known Jesuit. And uh, he got it immediately. He said, this way of prayer, he said, has this virtue of appealing to the poor as well as to the educated, to the sophisticated, to the theologians and the religious and the people who read lots of books. And he said, you know, for, among the poor, when, we, when they hear the readings when, at Mass or when they hear these very beautiful collects and prayers that are read out, you know, the, the language itself can seem to be another world to them, far from their own experience. And so he recommended this as a way of prayer that could be introduced to the favelas and to the poorest people, which I'm pleased to say it has been in Brazil. So there's a, that's, you know, part of the story. I, um, <clears throat> I don't want to be like the old monk we had once who came back from a, a, from a retreat he'd given to some nuns. And we asked him, so did you have a good retreat? He said, yes. He said, my mind went a complete blank. 
halfway through the retreat. So we said, well, what did you do? He said, well, I told them the history of the English Benedictine congregation. <laughs> so I don't want to, I don't, <laughs> so I don't want to go on too long about the history, but I hope there's enough in that to, to be relevant to, to what I should be talking about. title is Word into Silence, and this is clearly what meditation does in this way. And by meditation, I'm referring to particular, this particular form of meditation. The word meditare in the fourth century didn't mean, as we might think today, to think or to analyze or to imagine or to reflect. It perhaps had more of the sense of chewing or repeating. To meditate scripture was more about chewing the word, ruminatio, uh, a form of lexio, really. So it's in that uh, sense I use the word meditation. Now, this tradition of meditation has to be communicated, like everything, as, as Abba Isaac communicated it to Cassian, as, as Cassian, well, Cassian, through the, through the text, it communicated to, to John Main, and John Main communicated it to me when I went to see him, and I was very soon after he started meditating again himself at that point. I didn't know that the story, of course, but I went to see him. I was at a difficult period in my own life and at university, and I went to see him. He was a good counselor, a wise man, and he, uh, at the end of one of our conversations, he introduced me to meditation in a very few words, with a very light touch. I didn't understand it, but I was deeply drawn to try and discover what it meant. It took me a few years to get to that point, and then I became a monk because I'm a very slow learner and a very undisciplined person. But of course, you don't need to become a monk to meditate. So uh, this is an oral tradition, as the gospel itself was. And there's a quality of transmission when it is spoken that takes you further than even, I think, the written text. Obviously, they work together. John Main taught very powerfully by word of mouth. He would give short talks, maybe 15, 20-minute talks, shorter than mine. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, he would uh, give these talks to groups of people coming to learn to meditate. When he came back to his monastery in London, he opened a meditation center. And people came from all over London. They came from the school that we were running there. And uh, he would give these short talks leading into a period of meditation. For 20 minutes, 25 minutes, he would advise people to start with 20 and build up to 30. It's interesting how time has changed. Now, you know, people find 20 minutes really difficult to do. And even a 15-minute talk, you know, gets people a bit exhausted. Uh, our attention span is decreasing, obviously. But uh, I recorded many of these talks over the years. Not very well, but it was a pre-digital age, but I recorded them. And if you listen to them now, they're all up online, you'll hear a particular quality of teaching which is different from a lecture and different from a written communication. 
And you'll notice, I think, as I do anyway, that he starts often from a piece of scripture or from a, a story or from some point he's making. And then he expounds on that. He either introduces meditation, the practice, how to do it, or he reminds you gently of it if, you're, if it's to an experienced group. And then he becomes a little quieter, and then that leads into a, a period of meditation. It's a different kind of teaching, a different kind of transmission, because it's linked directly to the, to the um, experience. And for him, as for those desert monks, magistra experientia, the most important thing really in learning to meditate in this way is your own experience. John Mayne was a, a Trinitarian mystic, as he's been called. And his book, Word into Silence, his first book, which grew out of these talk, or talks uh, that he gave, is the structure of it. The first section is called the Father, the Son, and, and then the, the Son, and then the Spirit. And then there's a section on the practicalities of meditation. So he introduces the reader to the basic theology of Christian prayer, which is Trinitarian, that we go to the Father, with the Son, with Christ, in the Spirit. So our prayer, and this is really central to his whole vision of prayer, our prayer, what we call our prayer, is really our way into his prayer. So just as we leave self behind, we leave the notion of me and mine behind, as we leave the ego or progressively behind, and so we, we, we enter into union with that, with that prayer of Christ. So for John Mayne, this was why meditation can be called Christian, although we find meditation clearly in all the great religious traditions. What makes it Christian is the fact that, that we are consciously hoping to deepen our personal relationship with Jesus our personal relationship with Jesus, whatever it may be like, is faith, is our faith. It may be strong, informed, vigorous, mature, or it may just be beginning, it may be a little wobbly, but it may be a very new relationship. And like all relationships, it has its ups and downs. But it's, it's in order to deepen that relationship that we take up the practice of meditation. What makes it Christian, too, is the fact that we are meditating clearly, consciously, in a historical tradition. We can trace it back to the teaching of Jesus on prayer. Jesus was a teacher of contemplation. We can trace it back through the whole of the Christian mystical or contemplative tradition. There are many other instances of this teaching on meditation, like the cloud of unknowing in the 14th century. It's Christian, too, because we meditate within the context of Christian life and the other forms of prayer. This doesn't replace other forms of prayer, but it enriches and enhances them. It's also Christian because we, we meditate with others. Meditation is a very communal practice, both solitary and communal at the same time. And that's why it creates community in his vision. And um, when we meditate where two or three are gathered, I am there with them. And in the other books, in this book and in the other books that uh, John Mayne 
wrote or came, that came out of his, his teachings, of these, these teachings, you'll see how richly scripture is embedded in his teaching or grows out, or his teaching grows out of his personal discovery of the meaning of these passages, just as had happened to Cassian and Jamaris. So just uh, one more word about the word, the idea of the word, and then the mantra, and then we'll take a time to meditate. When we speak about the word of God, the Greek rhema, we're not talking just about a word on a page or the words on a page. There's a famous story of a group of rabbinical students who were arguing about a passage of scripture. And they went to see their rabbi, and they said, we don't know the meaning of this. Can you tell us what it means? So he said to them, well, show me the page. So he, they showed him the page, and he said, what do you see on the page? And they said, well, we see the words, the black marks printed on the page. And he said, that's right. He said, half the meaning of the text is in those words printed on the page. The other half of the, of the meaning is in the white spaces between the words. So the word, when we think of it in this uh, in the scriptural sense, is not just a word you find in a dictionary with a technical definition. It is more of an encounter. The word is something alive and active, the letter to the Hebrew says. It penetrates deep into the human mind. Like a sharp knife, it scalpel, it, it separates... Uh, separates the tr truth from illusion. So the word of God is something relational and something active and produces a result. It changes us if we open ourselves to it, as we all know from our lexio, our reading of scripture, in whatever form of we, we may read the scripture, whether it's Ignatian or lexio or whatever. So in the same way, the word that you take in your meditation is this kind of word. You also find it printed on a page uh, or in a dictionary. But in terms of your prayer, this word is something, has a spiritual form or spiritual energy. It should be a sacred word, naturally. We, we would choose a sacred word if we come to it as, a, as part of our faith. You could take the name Jesus, very ancient Christian mantra, or you could take the word Abba, for example. The word that uh, John Main recommended, and we continue to, to recommend, is the word Maranatha. Soon after John Main had begun to meditate again, after he, that young American student had, had triggered this process, um, he reread the New Testament in almost one sitting, he said. And this was a very powerful sort of re-relearning or a, a reintroduction or a, a new encounter with these familiar scriptures. And I think he said it was in one of those readings that this, this word Maranatha caught his eye and uh, occurs in the first letter to the Corinthians. And this, this is why he recommends it. It's not the only word you could take, obviously, but it is advisable to stay with the same word throughout the time of the meditation and from day to day.
The reason for this is so that the word can take root in your heart. This is the real, you can't understand meditation if you just think about it really as a technique to lower your blood pressure, improve your cholesterol, help you sleep better at night, reduce panic attacks, deal with addiction and depression and anxiety and so on. All of which the medical, medical scientific research suggests is linked beneficially to meditation. I think we would also interpret it in terms of the fruits of the spirit. In any case, we repeat the word continuously and stay with the same word so that it can sink into the heart and awaken in us or develop a link within us to that prayer of Christ, to that prayer of the spirit, which is flowing there like this fountain uh, continuously. Now, we haven't been listening to this fountain, maybe you have, but we haven't been listening to this fountain, but it's been flowing all this time. So in the same way, we may not always be conscious, fully conscious of this river of love, this stream of prayer that is flowing within us, but it's there the whole time. But normally it's blocked out by our thoughts, words, problems, anxieties, compulsions, addictions, and you know all the stuff that preoccupies us in our working days. At the times of meditation, we lay aside those thoughts in order to pay full attention to that presence within us. And as the word deepens and roots itself in our heart, we will find that at other times of the day, when you're sitting on a bus, when you're waiting for an appointment, in between classes, walking down the street, doing the dishes, that when you're doing something simple that doesn't require a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of your mental observation, you'll find that the mantra will quite naturally surface, come to the surface. And as it does so, it will bring you back to this sense of awareness and sense of union with that peace and joy of the spirit in your heart. There is no pill yet that has been made, I don't think, that will do that for you. I doubt whether there ever will be. And probably it would have bad side effects if, you, if it did. But meditation doesn't rely upon that kind of medication, it's meditation. So it does involve our own work and effort. But the spirit comes to the aid of our weakness. We're none of us good meditators, perfect meditators. Meditation is not something you have to succeed in, but just be faithful to. But we, we make our effort, we make our, put our skin in the game, and the spirit completes it. So let's take a, a time of meditation now. Maybe take a moment to have a little stretch. And the advantage of this little physical exercise is helps to wake us up. And Jesus said, stay awake and pray. But also because it reminds us that meditation is a very incarnational experience of prayer. It's not just mental prayer. And the body is a very helpful friend in this process because the body is always in the present moment. The body never lies. Whereas our mind is very rarely in the present moment. And our mind, we never know what we're really thinking or what we really want. So we can see the body as a friend 
and part of the mystery of prayer and the transformation of prayer, uh, and the body as a kind of anchor that's anchoring us in the, in the mind in the present moment. So just take a moment to feel that anchor, the weight of your body holding you to the ground. You can stretch up as well. Relax the muscles of your face, your forehead, your jaw, wherever you feel any tension, you can loosen up. And then be aware of your breathing for a moment. It's the breath that unites the mind and the body. The way we breathe reflects what's going on in our mind. And as you breathe in, you breathe in the gift of life, pure gift. And because it's a gift, you, you can never possess it. So you have to release it, you have to let go, so you breathe out. So every breath we take is a lesson in poverty of spirit. And in meditation, in the same way, we accept the gift of our being at its source, in the heart, that mysterious point of origin that we can never observe, we can never see beyond it. But we accept the gift of our being as our being comes into existence. And that's, that's the simplest way we can understand meditation. We accept the joyful gift of our being. So, just a few words maybe about how to learn. The word discipline, which isn't perhaps the most popular word in our vocabulary, but the word discipline comes from the Latin dicere, which means to learn. So we don't learn anything without discipline, really. And a discipline makes a disciple. So there is a, there's this aspect to meditation. It's not just a technique. It's a discipline. And that's why it enters into your life and becomes part of your life. But it's a habit. It's a good habit that, of course, we have to learn. It's easy to get into bad habits, not so easy to learn good habits. But if you want to learn to meditate, I think all you have to do is to start do the best you can to meditate every day. If you can't do it twice a day, do it once a day. When we teach meditation in schools, we just tell them to meditate when, when they like to, and they do like to, and the children will tell you they meditate at home, or parents will find them meditating on the back of the car. Or... So it's quite spontaneous. Anyway, as we get a bit older, we have more baggage, and uh, we can't rely upon that spontaneity, so we need a bit of discipline. And one very helpful way of developing that practice as part of your daily life is to meditate with others. Something of a paradox, really, because meditation, in a way, is a very solitary practice. I can't meditate for you, you can't meditate for me. But we, people do, come and meditate together, as we are this evening. It's a natural thing. And by meditating together, I think it brings you down to earth as well, your own learning process. Of course, you can sh share that with others, an example to each other. And uh, 
and it builds up a, a sense of community. So in a way, I don't think we can really learn to meditate totally alone. I think it's also very helpful, you know, to find uh, whatever little ways are useful for you to hook you into a practice. When we teach MBA students to meditate, we give them an, an essay on developing good habits and all, all these little techniques you can use to reward yourself with a second cup of coffee and things like that. So you can do that. I mean, if, if you can link the time of meditation to something else that you do regularly, then of course it's easier. You hook it onto something else. You can also find, if you go to our website, wccm.org, you can find um, quite a lot of resources. You can browse through them and see what you find helpful. There's a daily email, for example, you can get, which gives you a little nudge every morning. There's an app, WCCM app, that you can use, which has a timer and also links to other resources. So I think, um, in a way, one needs to build one's own methodology of practice, but these are helpful practices that you, a little skillful means, the Buddhists call it skillful means that will help you to, to develop it. And some reading, I don't think too much reading, but uh, some reading in and around this contemplative tradition is very helpful. There's also an online course, which is free, on our website, we have a, a website called, called School of Meditation, uh, linked to the main website. And uh, there's a number of courses that we're adding to. Uh, there's a very interesting, good course actually on roots of Christian mysticism. It takes you through the whole tradition. But there are some free courses as well. So one of them is uh, an introduction to meditation. So we try and make it as easy for you as possible. You can take horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And I think, uh, certainly in my experience, when I first learned, I was very enthusiastic. I wanted to do it, but I didn't have any resources or anyone to meditate with at that time. And uh, so I was pretty useless. But then, eventually, it was, it was you know, I think, learning to meditate with other people in a supportive group that got me into the practice and that's why these meditation groups and we hope they will now form with Paul's help and others here in South Africa. I think if you put meditation into the bigger picture, I, th I think meditation doesn't replace other forms of prayer but it does expand your model or your picture of prayer. That's why we should never criticize or condemn another person's way of prayer but I, I think um, Jesus said, you know, your heavenly Father knows your needs before you ask. So Saint Augustine asked, why do we put our needs into our, our needs into words if God already knows? So are we asking God to change His mind? No, God doesn't change His mind. Are we telling God something He doesn't know? Not likely. Are we asking God to intervene specially on my behalf? So in other words, dear God, I have an exam tomorrow. I haven't done any work for it, but I need to come first. 
So let me come first, even though others people who've done a lot of work, you know, you'll have to deal with them later. So God doesn't have favorites. So he says, okay, so why do we put our needs into words? It's not to do any of those things, but to remind ourselves, well, I, I would say to, he says to remind ourselves that God knows and God cares. And of course, it's natural for us at times to express what's going on, our needs and concerns. Also, I think it's, it's very meaningful and helpful when you, when you do pray for other people. It's a, it is a link, you know. It's, a, it's an expression of your love and concern. So, so I think there, it, it's, a, it's a perfectly valid, you know, way of prayer. So it doesn't, it's not, you don't have to stop intercession because you are meditating. And not, but, but they're distinct or different times or different periods of prayer. But in a sense, when you meditate, you carry, I, I actually said this, said this to somebody the other day, uh, his, he was very concerned about his mother who had just been taken into hospital. So I said something like, I'll, I'll keep, keep her in prayer. So he wrote me this long note about what does that really mean? <laughs> and uh, sort of I gave the best answer I could, which is that it doesn't mean that at the time of meditation you are thinking about that person. But if that need, if that connection is a real one, if you feel concern, and obviously there are different degrees of concern you have, but if they are, in a sense, part of your compassionate concern, then they will be carried in your heart, in you, as you make this journey into silence. And it also reminds us, that, and then that journey is into, into the mind of Christ. And in the mind of Christ is very capacious. It, uh, every human need and every human suffering and is known, is present. That's what, what's amazing about the mind of Christ. So I think there is a sense in which we're not ignoring uh, the, the people we say we pray for or the needs of the world when we meditate. It's, and there's a real sense in which we are carrying those needs, but without thinking about them or articulating them. If you get too literal about it, you end up at this convent I went to once, their midday prayer consisted almost entirely of this huge list. It took about 15 minutes to read out this list of all the people they were praying for. Well, it, you know, it, I'm not saying it was a bad thing to do, but um, it could have been compressed, you know, into a zip file. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, it would have been just as effective, maybe more. Please comment and subscribe to our podcast for more candid conversations passionate people, and important issues. Expanding Horizons is produced by the Jesuit Institute South Africa with music and sound by Francis Tucson. Visit us at www.jesuitinstitute.org.za